This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. It's boxing. A look inside boxing with Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix. Interviews, analysis, and everything going on in boxing. And now a man who I wish was called the Boston Bleeder. All doctors to the ER. It's sort of like getting punched in the face. Chris Chris Mannix. All right, joining me now... On the podcast, two of my favorite writers in boxing, Mike Coppinger, senior writer over at The Athletic. My colleague, Greg Bishop, senior writer with Sports Illustrated. He's also the ghostwriter for Jim Gray's new book, <laughs> Talking to Goats. That is out 11-10 and completely unrelated. Greg is also a huge sellout. So it's good to have him <laughs> on the podcast. I was wondering how you were going to play that. Well played, well played. <laughs> there, had to be, there had to be something. The book is out 11-10, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's it's good. You're already a shameless shill. I <laughs> it's rough out here um, in these uh, streets, you know. <laughs> well, good to talk to you guys. And you guys were were two guys that were the few people ringside for Teofimo Lopez's uh, win over uh, Vasily Lomachenko. I don't want to call it a shocking win because I mean I had Lopez winning before, and some other people did, and a lot of people thought he'd be at least competitive uh, going into this fight, but. Yeah, let me start there with you guys watching. Mike, we'll start with you. Um, just your reaction to what you saw ringside from Teofimo Lopez over Lomachenko. Really good performance. I thought it was a very mature performance from Teofimo Lopez. Every time Lomachenko threw a punch, Teofimo made sure to punch back right away. Punching with him made him pay early and often and had Lomachenko doing his best Adrian Broner impersonation over the first seven rounds. A little, uh, a little startling for all the boxing hardcores, I'm sure. Greg, what did you think sitting there? You know, the, the biggest thing to me wasn't that he won. I thought he would be competitive, but it was really how he fought. You know, I think that I thought that if this was going to happen, if he was going to win, it would be some sort of knockout. 
catching a smaller guy with a massive punch. And it was clear very early that his ring generalship and IQ in terms of movement and tactics was much higher than I thought that it would be, especially at 23 and against a guy who's known as sort of a clinician, you know? And so, I mean, it was interesting to see him take away like Lomachenko's ability to go right. Like who's ever done that? We've seen people bully him a little bit. You've seen people hit him, but like that was like ring generalship at its finest. And that to me was really impressive. Mike, you mentioned Adrian Broner as the comp. I honestly look flashback to like Chris Algieri, Manny Pacquiao, where I was almost expecting like a translation from Papachenko saying like after the sixth round, we're going to let him out of the cage and he can go and, and do his thing. Like, what did you make of the strategy? I mean, did you see it as strategy or did you see it as, I don't know, maybe Lomachenko just didn't want to engage a bigger man. Maybe the shoulder, which we heard about after the fact being injured, had something to do with it. How did you, what, what, what was your read on how the first six rounds went? Bewilderment. You know, Lomachenko is one of the greatest fighters we've seen in years. And like, like Greg said, a lot of us thought that, all right, see if he had a great shot, but yeah, it would be the knockout punch. Uh, I thought Lomachenko just simply showed him too much respect. It, it was clear that he made the decision going into the eighth round that, okay, I'm going to have to take a lot of punishment if I want to win this fight. I have to walk in and I'm going to get hit. And once he did that, though, and made that decision, I thought he started doing really well. I, I had him sweeping rounds 8 through 11. And then that was the most impressive thing to me is that Lopez won the 12th so clearly, in my opinion. He threw 98 shots and landed 50. I mean, that's big balls there, you know, delivering a 12th round when you need it. Although I guess he didn't really need it in reality, given the wacky scorecards. Yeah, Greg, I want to get to the scorecards in a second, but, you know, like we haven't really heard a coherent explanation from Team Lomachenko about, uh, you know, what the strategy was or why he was so sluggish. I mean, we know historically that Lomachenko is not the fastest of starters. I mean, watching on TV, I mean, I think I heard the word download about 500 times (laughs) on the broadcast about how, you know, Lomachenko downloads information from there. And look, it's an apt word, but... I mean, half the fight to, to download just was mystifying. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, the thing that was interesting is it was almost like you could see him calculating in real time, like this guy is bigger than me and he's a better fighter than I thought. And it, it almost seemed like he just knew that if he was going to be reckless, like we were texting about this, Chris, during the fight, you and I, it felt like if he was going to take a step on the ledge that he was going to get knocked out. And I think you could see him sort of calculate that in his head which was fascinating to me because he's a pretty fearless guy and we know him as sort of this cold, you know, Ukrainian technician. And Mike's right. Like, you, you didn't really see him, like, give it a shot until eight. And when he did give it a shot, it was a way more interesting fight, but he took a lot of punishment too. And I think part of the strategy was, like, let's download it. And then he downloaded and thought, oh, shoot, I got a virus here. You know, and it's like, you know, back in the 1999 download days. And, you know, like, you just, like, you just have to – I think what you saw in real time was like a guy saying, holy cow, this guy's good. You know, like this is, this is going to be a hard deal and I don't want to do this, you know? And to me, that was part of what was so impressive about what Tiafimo did is he took whatever strategy they had and he rendered it moot uh, almost instantly. Mike, we, we want boxers to take fights like this. Like we, we want guys to jump at challenges like this. And I hate after the fact how there's there can be a narrative spun like, well, Lomachenko was overrated. You know, Teofimo exposes Lomachenko. That wasn't my read on it at all. I mean, the reason I picked Lopez coming in was largely because I hadn't seen 
I hadn't seen enough from from Lomachenko at 135 to prove that he was as great at 135 as he was at 130. Like I don't I don't look at this fight as saying Lomachenko's over the hill. He can't beat, you know, he's he's now past his prime. I I just think he's in the wrong weight class. I mean, how, how do you see it? Totally. I mean, he's I'm sure he's a guy that could still make 126. I I know Greg and I heard that a lot when we were in Vegas around some of the top ranked guys and Look, we saw at 135 when he fought Jorge Linares, got drops, had a lot of trouble before he scored the knockout. Same with Luke Campbell. And Luke Campbell, I think, kind of laid the blueprint a little bit, even though he lost, clearly, landing all those big body shots. Teofimo Lopez did a great job just tapping him to the body, upsetting his rhythm. And you saw that midsection was all red by the middle of the fight. That, I think, was one of the keys to the fight. And look, I think Lomachenko would be best served going back to 130. Look, there's some huge fights there. Miguel Burchelt. Shakur Stevenson, both in that top-ranked universe. At some point, it was always going to be take a larger man to beat a guy like Lomachenko, such an all-time talent. But yes, you're, uh, you're right. I hate this expo- exposed term. It's so overused. I'm, I'm glad Greg was hearing that uh, as well because I just assumed he was at the food court uh, sneaking down uh, <laughs> on Fridays and Saturdays, you know, breaking, breaking the bubble down there. But it's good that you were hearing similar things there, Greg. Um, you know, Greg, you wrote about the the bad blood between these two guys and a lot of that stems from you know Lopez senior who is uh not only Teofimo's father but also his trainer uh you know the dynamic between father and son there we see a lot of father son trainer combinations including Papachenko uh and Vasily but is there anything different about the Lopez's dynamic it, it just seems like from my vantage point from covering Teofimo like you know, dad loves to talk and, you know, says his son's the greatest and it's the son's job to consistently go out there and prove he's the greatest, which doesn't make it necessarily unique. I mean, Floyd Sr. did that a lot with with Junior. We've had other examples, but, you know, dad puts a lot of pressure on son at a young age and, and son had to go out there and really back it up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we wrote about the incident in the hotel lobby in New York in 2018 when he confronted Lomachenko, like he basically wanted to fight him, you know, himself. Uh, one thing that stood out to me after the win, I'm not sure if they showed it on TV, was Lopez. They call him Junior, but it's the dad. He, he, you know, he climbed up on the, he's on the ring ropes himself, saying like, "I'm the best trainer in the world." He's like, thumping his chest, and I'm like, "Dude, did you win? You know, or was this Tiafimo, you know, the fighter that was in there beating Lomachenko?" And one thing that just strikes me about their dynamic that I don't think is like wholly unusual, but it's interesting to me, is just that like Tiafimo, the fighter, is the measured one. You know, he's the one that doesn't seem to be that ruffled. He'll talk some stuff, but he he told me a story once when I was doing the prospect of the year thing for our annual awards that his dad used to beat up marathon joggers, you know, like when they were running the marathon in New York City. And he just said it like it was a normal part of life. And I think, you know, to kind of come through that stuff and to have your father then put you in a fight that most people don't think you're totally ready for, that many people think is a bad idea, it was going to be an early mark, He'd come through it and get a chance to do all these other things again. And then to go go after that, you know, after the childhood, after the things he lived through, after the hotel incident, and come through all of that and deliver the way he did, like that to me says, you know, not only is he 23, but his head's on the in the right place. And, you know, it, that to me is the difference between he won a big fight and, like, he might be, like, a really kind of generational talent. Like, it's pretty early to say but that's all the right ingredients are right there. Wait, be, wait nice. real quick. Wait, before you gloss over this, Teofimo Sr. would jump marathoners like during the marathon? Yes. Uh, yeah, like he, he was like mad they were running the marathon, I guess. And he would just like, 
Yeah. When I was in when I was in Vegas, I pitched the story. I said I want to just do a night out with the dad. Like, let's just go have a night, and we'll just write the scene. Like, it's right in my alley, right? And they were like, no way, never. You know, like I don't think that was getting off the ground. Right? Who was like, no way? Who said never? Evan Corn. Yeah. If you're listening, oh, they weren't. Come on, corner man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike, you're uh, you're plugged into what Top Rank's thinking and what you know Team Lopez is thinking. I mean, he's a shot caller now. Like he's the unified, undisputed champion at 135, and immediately afterwards, you had the likes of Devin Haney, Ryan Garcia. Uh, calling him out. Uh, Tank Davis is certainly out there if he wins his fight on October 31st. There's obviously talk about fighting the winner of the Josh Taylor, uh, Jose Ramirez fight, which is scheduled to take place some point uh, early next year. Where do, what's your sense on where Lopez goes from here? My sense, at least right now, is that Lopez is going to move up to 140 pounds and wait for the winner, of Josh Taylor, Jose Ramirez, which would be a big fight and easy to make considering they're all with top rank. And we know that everyone in boxing likes to keep it within their own universe, so to speak. Um, I would expect Teofimo to get a fight at 141st to get acclimated, but it's still so early. I don't know that that's going to happen. It just That's what I guess. That's what they were saying at the press conference. And you're right. He's a shot caller now. I, I, I'm with you. I would love to see the Devin Haney fight, but I think it's going to be real difficult to make. You know, It's going to be the same old nonsense as always. Devin's with the zone. Teofimo's with ESPN. Same with Ryan Garcia. Tank, guess what? He's with PBC. Yeah, that would be unfortunate if they can't get those fights made because of that. But you're probably right about it, that the politics of it uh, invariably gets in the way. I mean, I, I think the Tank Davis fight is is the best because I think the other fights are going to be there for him down the line. I think, you know, Haney's going to move up to 140 at some point too. Uh, I think Ryan Garcia is going to grow into his body and move up to 140 at some point too. I'm not necessarily convinced the Tank does it. And... Like, I mean, if I, I understand that the money's got to be right, but like this, Mike, to me, I mean, are you convinced that Tank Davis would not take that fight if offered to him? I mean, I think Bob's going to go out there and make some offers and make some very public offers and say he's making these offers. Um, is it your read on it that that's just not a fight that the Davis side, the PBC side is interested in? I mean, it's just at this point right now, you know, they're focused on the Leo Santa Cruz fight, Showtime pay-per-view next week. And you look, you and I and Greg know how this works. We know they're going to say, well, yeah, if you want to fight me, I'll fight you. Let's do it on Showtime pay-per-view. We know that's coming. And I don't see how you make this happen. It's not a big enough fight where you're going to have a cross-promotion pay-per-view. I think we have a lot that, of complications here. That, that's, I mean, I, I, you're right. Like, that stuff kind of bothers me, though. Like, granted, these networks are not going to make as much money doing joint pay-per-views. I mean, it's a simple matter of mathematics. You split the the revenue, you know, down the middle from what you're getting. But it's like, do, do you really want to, you know, have Lopez against, I don't know, insert 140 pounder here, you know, on your network, or do you want to be part of a big event? That That's one of the more frustrating things to me. Like networks absolutely, Mike, can do this. Like they can join forces, put petty egos aside and make fights happen. We've seen it with the bigger fights. It's just the choosing not to do it with these lesser fights drives me absolutely bonkers it just it's the kind of thing that that derails momentum in the sports but it's not everything that does it but it's part of the big problem in boxing right you just had a fight on espn you know over three million viewers when you count streaming that's a huge number but now the question becomes how do you build off that momentum and in boxing more often than not they don't fighters disappear after the fight ends you don't hear from them until six months later when they fight a comeback opponent so you get the big fight next fall. 
hopefully top rank is going to have Teofimo in turn in early 2021. And hopefully it's going to be a legit fight. And if it's not, they got to get him in the ring against somebody legit soon thereafter. But I am hopeful that we're going to get maybe Ryan Garcia versus Devin Haney next year. I mean, if we can't get at least, you know, we have these four guys you mentioned. If we can't get at least one fight between the four of them next year, I mean, that's just a huge, huge failure by boxing. Yeah, I think their attitudes are going to be helpful in this too. Like Teofimo is clearly a take-on-all-comers kind of guy. He proved it. I think Devin Haney's the same way. I know Ryan Garcia is the same way. They almost have to hold Ryan back from taking these big fights for his own his own benefit. And, and I don't disagree with some of the strategy there. Uh, but I, I think that the attitude of these guys could be uh, pretty influential. Greg, you've got some insight. You're doing some writing for Showtime for this uh, for their All Access series leading into uh, the Javante Davis-Leo Santa Cruz fight. What's your kind of read on Javante's attitude about this? Do you look at him as kind of a, a dare-to-be-great type of guy, or is he just going to kind of march to the beat of you know the Floyd Mayweather drum? You know, I think he sees this really as a separator kind of fight, you know, to take what he's learned from Floyd and move forward with it. Now, we've seen in the past that hasn't always worked, right? You know, they, they, it's not easy to sort of exist in that shadow and come out of it in a way that's beneficial to you. But when you look at his resume, you know, 22 knockouts and 23 fights, some of the people that he has fought, to me, this, this is like sort of a validation fight for him to beat a guy as relentless as Leo Santa Cruz, who's beaten good fighters, who's been a champion in four different divisions, and I think when he looks at the future, like this is when I think he sees himself stepping out of Floyd's shadow and into his own. You know, the question is, will that happen? And I, I, don't, I just don't feel confident that I really know that yet because I just think we don't know enough about him. You know, to me, boxing, like you don't really know about a fighter till they're like, I don't know, 25 fights in. You know, like the first 20 are always, almost always misleading. You know, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. in the case of like a Lomachenko where, you know, they're going for a, a world title in their second or third fight. But, you know, I, I think when you look at him, like, he's had some pretty spectacular performances. But I, I would be curious how they translate as he goes up in terms of competition, you know, weight, all those kind of things. Yeah, I liked uh, Lopez's line where he said, you know, before your money may, you've got to be pretty boy first, mm-hmm. implying you've got to win those big fights uh, before you can be, you know, kind of the, the not a cherry picker, but someone that sort of chooses his own path. And uh, I like that attitude. Hope that attitude stays with him over the next uh, few years. He takes these big fights. Uh, Mike, to shift it to Lomachenko, uh, I'm assuming, as we discussed, that he drops back down, whether it's 126 or 130. And look, I, I, there's some monster fights there for him. Like top rank is pretty flush in the 130-pound division. And lurking out there, you know, maybe end of next year is Shakur Stevenson, which would be kind of a huge you know, two Olympian matchup, you know, Shakur's already got a title at 126. I mean, Lomachenko, it's got to be disappointing for him, but, you know, as long as he's healthy, there's, he can bounce back, I think, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it would be insane to write him off. He's 32 years old. You know, he has two losses now, right? One to Orlando Salido in his second fight, and now it's Teofimo Lopez. I thought it was an incredibly close fight, too. I had it ranked 115, 113, seven rounds to five for Teofimo Lopez. I mean, a rematch is really what we would need. It just doesn't sound like that's going to happen or even being considered. I mean, we asked Teofimo Lopez. He said, why would I give him a rematch? It wasn't a close fight. Now, I mean, I don't know about that, but I think regardless, like you said, 130 makes more sense. Uh, if not Shakur, Miguel Burchelt. I think Burchelt's a very underrated fighter. I think he's going to walk right through Oscar Valdez in December, and he's a big 130. I mean, he's going to be a lot bigger than Lomachenko, too. If Lomachenko mm-hmm. wants to get back on track, I think – I mean, let's be real. He's probably going to have a comeback fight first. And how long is that going to take to get that? He has shoulder surgery. 
not going to be able to train until January or so. I, again, I think this is just a big problem with boxing. With I mean, this is a extenuating circumstance with the injury, but just the the delay being between fights. And I think for for Lomachenko too. I mean, the winner of Frampton versus Herring could be an option, you know, for that title as well. I mean, especially if you know Frampton wins, you can go back overseas if you, you know, have the opportunity and you know fight another you know, popular European or British fighter. Uh, that could be really, really compelling. Um, all right, let's, before we get into the rating stuff, you, you mentioned how, Mike, you mentioned Teofimo was like, it wasn't a close fight. Well, it was a close fight to us. It wasn't a close fight to a couple of judges, specifically Julie Letterman, who had it 119-109, giving one round to uh, Lomachenko in this fight, which is astonishing because, you know, I, I thought he won one of the first six. You might you can say Lopez swept the first six rounds if you want. I thought Lomachenko might have won the second round. I think I gave it to him. But, you know, for the last five rounds, I thought Lomachenko won. It wasn't even close. Like, you know, what do we what what can be done about this, Mike? Because it feels like we have the same conversation every time stuff like this happens. Now, fortunately, it doesn't impact the outcome because the right person won this fight. But it still isn't great for boxing to have a scorecard that's so unbelievably wide and so strains credulity. And then, you know, you read some of the quotes from Bob Bennett, you know, the last couple of days, and it's like, it doesn't seem like anything's going to be done about it, that there's no issue there. I mean, what's your takeaway from all that? What's crazy, though, is that this was not a difficult fight to score. I mean, we were ringside, and everyone I've spoken to had it either anywhere from a draw to 115-113 and 116-112. Those are the only three scores I have heard from anyone besides the three judges. Now, look, I, like you, I, had, I gave the second round to Lomachenko and then 8, 9, 10, and 11. Could you give the second to Teofimo? Sure. But you're right. This all stems to, it's like, was it corruption on the part of Julie Letterman? I like to think not. Is it incompetence? I mean, she's been doing this for God knows how many years at this point. She's been around forever. I don't understand, but it all boils down to count- accountability. There is no accountability. She wasn't made available to us. And you know how this is. Even if you want to go be intrepid and find them, they bolt out of there immediately when the decision's announced. I tried to find Bennett, mm-hmm. got him at the press conference, started talking to Bob. And then I say, oh, by the way, Bob, this is on the record, right? And he goes, no, 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 of course not. And while I'm talking to Bob, I say, all right, well, what did you think of the scorecard? Clearly that's out of line. And he goes, oh, well, I'm not so sure. You know, I was focused on replay didn't get to score the fight closely, but why not? Now, is Bob going to sit with Julie and have her explain the scores? Of course not, I'm sure. I I can't imagine he will. That's what I would like to see. I would like to see someone actually sit there and explain, well, this is why Lomachenko only won run rounds. I mean, it it really, it's incredibly disrespectful to Lomachenko. I mean, and I'm sick of this argument of, oh, well, the right guy won. Well, that's neither here nor there because you're saying that if you're Julie Letterman, it didn't matter what Lomachenko did. You weren't going to give the fight to him for whatever reason, whatever you were seeing. There's no accountability. Bob Bennett's not going to do anything. No one's going to do anything. And it seems that at least in you know the British Boxing Board of Control, we had Terry O'Connor over the weekend with that wacky scorecard with Lewis Ritson and Miguel Vasquez. At least you have Eddie Hearn over there call him out. And Bob Aram did call out Julie Letterman too. And now the British Boxing Board of Control is investigating. What is Bob Bennett going to do? I doesn't sound like he's going to do anything, you know, right, quite frankly. Not. And if his if history is any indicator, he, he won't. Uh, Greg, I mean, you see this in the NFL. I see it in the NBA. You know, officials are ranked. Like there's, you know, you do the Super Bowl because you are the best performing officiating crew or officials of the year. The NBA 
has, I think it's 14 referees that they announced before the finals that are ranked based on, you know, computerized criteria and other things. It is truly astonishing that there isn't anything that resembles that in boxing. Pennsylvania does some little things with it, but, you know, the Nevada Commission, you would think should have that. Like, you're, you're the Nevada Commission. The lion's share of big fights are in Nevada or in New York. Like, you, you need to... It just is boggles my mind that there isn't a, a system in place that firmly establishes who the top judges are. And even, like, anecdotally, we kind of know who some of them are. I think Steve Weisfeld is one of the best. I have, would have no problem with consistently seeing Steve on every top card as he was on this uh, Lomachenko-Lopez card. But, like, how is there not a system in place that tells you who the best judges are? And whoever the best judges are, you put them on the biggest fights. Yeah, and I think you could take that one step further, right? Like, this is the sport where you need the judging to be really on point. You know, this there are lives on the line in boxing in the way that there aren't in other sports. And there are people that are responsible for this that need to be to have a basic understanding of how boxing works and how a fight should go. You know, I think I wrote in my column from Saturday that there was one person in the whole world that saw that fight, 119-109, and it just happened to be one of the judges in the fight. And I think Bob got to me before he got silenced because he was standing right by my table when the cards came down. And what he said was essentially, she should never ref a fight again. You know, and he was, he was very, very upset. You know, he was saying, this is why, you know, people look at boxing and wonder what's going on. And to me, like it strikes directly at the main problem that we have that we're talking about in different ways here. And that's credibility. You know, do we know that the best fighters are going to fight each other? Do we know that the promoters can get along well enough to make the best fights? If they can't, if those things can't happen, why are we paying for them? Why are we watching them? Do we know that we're, when we see a great fight, when everything comes together the way it did on Saturday, great performance, interesting setup, you have the whole bubble, and then you can't trust the scorecards. Like All of these things speak to the same thing. Boxing has a credibility issue. It's part of the reason that it went from being the mo most uh, celebrated sport in America, the thing that everybody stopped for, to something that people like us enjoy, but is a little bit more niche. And, you know, what we saw on Saturday with your friends that aren't boxing fans were asking about the fight. They're trying to find me and Mike on TV to see if we're there. Like this was a moment of all these viewers turning in. You know, you have this chance to turn this into something, momentum for a kid who's 23 and deserves to be on pound for pound list now. And what are we talking about a week later? You know, 119-109. That is a major issue and the only way to fix it is to one like mike said have accountability when these things happen and two you know like it should even just be nevada there should be an overall ranking system and you should get big fights based on how you do in your job the same way every other job in the world works yeah i agree um you know mike greg mentioned the viewership and it was a great number and you talked about you know over three million with the streaming numbers like is there momentum from this? Like, or do you think fighters going to wake up, promoters going to wake up saying, hey, you know, people do watch boxing when we make good fights. Like, it's amazing. Like, you put crap on TV and nobody watches. You put something good on TV and everybody watches. I am astonished by this, by this development. Do you think that this leads to anything or is it kind of a one-off that we're griping about again in two months? I'm hopeful. I mean, I know ESPN was thrilled. I think it... it I think it alerted them to what you're saying. Like, I don't think there's ever been a question, right? Like Greg was saying, people love boxing. People love the big fight atmosphere. They still do love it. 
I personally think that boxing is the best live product in the world when everything comes together. And I just, I don't know. We see PBC hellbent right now on pay-per-view. I think we all have to get away from pay-per-view, even for the big fights. I mean, ESPN is giving UFC over $300 million a year to deliver the best fights on ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. Yes, they have pay-per-view, but look, it's a big budget. Boxing, Top Rank gets around $90 million from ESPN. Now, maybe if Top Rank says, you know what? We're going we're gonna to eat it in the short term. We're going to lose some money. We're going to put our best foot forward. We're going to make the best fights happen. Look, I'm not saying every fight has to be a, a knockout, but you have – do 10 a year. Give me eight a year, eight, ten pole fights a year where ESPN can put their whole muscle behind it and know that we're going to do a massive rating. People are going to be flocking to us to watch this big fight, and we're going to have people talking about it. That's what they want, right? It's what they get with the NFL, the NBA. They want people talking about their, their network and their sports nonstop. And we need all the networks yeah. to do that. And, and they people were like all week long, Greg, you know, the, the, as you mentioned earlier, the casual fans were talking about this fight. There was genuine buzz for it on social media. You had, you know, Damian Lillard's out there tweeting about it. Other athletes are tweeting about it, talking about this fight. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science how this all works. I mean, but like how much do you put on the fighters for this too? I mean, Teofimo Lopez did not make a huge amount of money for this fight. Made a career-high payday, but if he had kicked the can down the road, chances are he would have made more for this fight. I mean, how much of this do you put on the fighters? And I'm talking to Mike's best friend, Jamal Charlo, right now. I'm looking <laughs> you right in the camera, Jamal. And I'm saying, go fight Demetrius Andrade right now. But how much, Mike, how much, Greg, do you put on the fighters here? Yeah, I, I didn't know if that was too soon in terms of a subject matter. I would have brought it up myself. But, uh, you know, to me, it was a good example of like, you know, his last fight was a great fight. You know, tactically, a really interesting fight. The way that he did it was really interesting. The guy that he took on in terms of Darianchenko was a legitimate opponent. I wish more people had seen it. I wish more people had said, this guy's a legitimate middleweight. He should be fighting great fighters in great fights moving forward on a show where you don't necessarily have to pay for it. Like, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I probably personally blame the fighters less than I blame the promoters just because, you know, at a certain level, what we're asking them to do is incredibly difficult. It's obviously something that I could never do. You know, you have to, like, channel your whole being into, like, this one night when you're basically allowing yourself to get hit as hard as you can over and over, you know, in the face and the body and everything else. But I think that more of those guys want to fight better fights, but that we've created this system now where the perfect record is so important. And you, you know where that came from. We know where that started. You know, you know the, the, the downswing of boxing coincides perfectly with the one perfect record that was protected and protected and protected. And I think that what we've done is get away from, like Manny Pacquiao had an incredible career. He lost, what, seven times, six times? You know, there's nothing to diminish his greatness as a boxer in those losses. If anything, fighting the way he did against Keith Thurman after, like, this sort of down period only cemented that, like, this guy did it for 20 years at the highest possible level. And, I, you know, to me, we've gotten away from that. Ali lost. Sugar Ray Robinson lost. All these 80s welterweights, they lost. It doesn't mean we sit here and say Sugar Ray Leonard wasn't great because, you know, or like Roberto Duran wasn't great or Muhammad Ali wasn't great. I mean, the, the, the matchups are, are there, you know. The question is, can we, can we get rid of the, the sort of pettiness or the money part of it and put them there in a way that makes it enticing? Because I think what this fight proved is you put two guys that people want to see on TV that they don't have to pay for, you get a pretty good result. You watch the numbers roll in. 
that ultimately translates to money. The question is, is it long-term? Is it sustained growth or, or are we, you know, grabbing at cash here? And, you know, those decisions obviously, you know, way above my pay grade. Mike, do you think that there's, that we're seeing kind of the breaking of the proverbial wheel, like that, uh, the, the end of the Floyd Mayweatherification, for lack of a better phrase, of, of boxing? Because you do see Teofimo saying, like, I got to fight good fighters and then going out there and doing it. Ryan Garcia has told me a dozen times that he doesn't care if he loses. I feel like Devin Haney has a comparable attitude about that. Is there, do you get, is there any hope that from the attitude of these younger guys that, you know, maybe we'll see a shift in boxing? Uh, I'm not so sure because I, I personally don't think it is the fighters. I think it's the managers. The managers are the ones that say, oh, no, no, if my guy's going to fight, you know, fighter A, he needs to get paid $8 million. I mean, we hear it all the time. The managers make it so that the promoters can make the best fights. And the promoters are complicit too because really the promoters will, will offer you three fights, right? Oh, you can fight this guy for this much. I mean, Heyman's notorious for this, right? He'll go to a guy like Leo Santa Cruz. You could fight. Javante Davis for, you know, X amount of money or this easier opponent for this much money. Which one do you want? It's like enough for this. And I also blame the networks too. I mean, it's everyone. The networks, we need to get back to the HBO a la carte business. You know, a capitalism at its best. Give me your best fight mm -hmm. and bid on it. You know, have a network executive say, all right, I'm going to, I have $10 million to spend. What are the best fights? Give me your, all your best offers. It's like a, do a silent auction, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but now we have top rank and ESPN for their own budget. There's no pressure. There's no, but there's no, uh, there's no barrier there saying, all right, well, you know what? We're not going to approve that fight. There's no, there's no measure in place to make sure that we get the best fights. It's all, we're leaving everyone to their own devices. No, I, I completely, I completely agree with that attitude. Like that's, that's an, that's an attitude. I, I wish networks would adopt and maybe we'll see more of it in this kind of post-pandemic, you know, financial landscape. I mean, Eddie Hearns on this podcast a little bit later on, he, he talked to me about he's going to start cutting fighters, you know, like that, you know, if they're not going to take big fights or if you can't make big fights with them, there's no real sense in having them around. And look, I mean, I love Demetrius Andrade, I do, but like, do, is there any reason to have him on the roster if you're fighting Dusty Hernandez Harrison and then probably fighting a uh, Liam Williams at some point next year after fighting Luke Keeler and Maciek Selecki. It's just, I don't blame Andrade for any of this, Mike. I just think it's like, it's a simple financial decision. Like if you can't make the big fight, who cares? And if you're a network, like, are you really getting anything out of it? Like I, I harp on the Charlo stuff, but I mean, I've got numbers to back that up. Like 2019, he was not putting up numbers on Showtime. So what's the value for Showtime? What's the value for ESPN, for any of these networks, if a guy is not delivering numbers and not producing buzz. And if you're in ESPN and you're putting something on ESPN Plus, if you're a DAZN and you're putting something on DAZN, you, you need the buzz. You need people to be interested in the fight. I said this after golovkin Derevchenko. Like, it was a great fight, but it, it mattered a lot less because nobody thought it was going to be a great fight. Right. Like, you need people to think it's going to be a great fight, Mike. You need people to, to be like, I'm ready. Like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday morning, I want to watch this fight. If you don't have that feeling... Don't put shit on TV. Like, don't do it. Don't, don't waste your money. Save it, put it in the bank, and use it another day. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, Chris. You're right. It's not an, I mean, you hear this all the time. Promoters say, ha ha, I told you so. Way better fight than you thought. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter because there was no buzz and no one watched it. It has to matter going in to the fight, right? It's not enough to say it after the fact. And I think boxing is this one sport where I can look at the landscape and say, you know what? 
fighter revenue is not tied to reality. It's not tied to how much revenue they bring in. You have Sergey Drevyanchenko making, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And, um, I mean, every fighter pretty much in the PBC universe and the Zone universe, they're all making absolutely insane money to fight, you know, eh, it's an okay fight. I'll watch it, I guess, if I'm, not, if I'm not doing anything. But where are the fights where people are saying, you know what, I'm going to stay home and make sure that I am in front of a TV when the fight is on live because I can't miss it. I need to talk to my buddies, be on social media, and be discussing this fight at a watch party or something. And I think a big, big issue with this is that boxing is so fragmented. We see boxers getting about 80% of the revenue, whereas in the UFC, it's around 20%. In the NFL, MLB, you know, all those team sports, it's about half and half. We need to get closer to that. Yeah, I mean, you've covered Canelo a lot. Canelo brings this up all the time, like that – you know, fighters that want to fight him often hold him hostage and say, like, I, I demand eight, nine million dollars. We're well, not bringing eight, nine million dollars of value to the fight. Like, you should be paid what you're bringing to the table. I mean, just a title or in the case of Sergey Kovalev, a different weight class shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be beholden to pay that guy ten million dollars. That stuff, that stuff's got to stop. So, I mean, maybe in 2020 we see or 2021 we see that uh, that start to change. Um, Greg, let's let's talk about Edgar Berlanga for a second. You were ringside for it. That was the on the undercard of the Lopez Lomachenko fight. Picked up his 15th straight win, 15th straight first round knockout. Jumped up on the ring ropes and said, "I'm an effing monster!" Right after the fact. So let's start there. Is Edgar Berlanga a bleeping monster? Well, I have to say before the main event started, that was like the loudest that bubble had been, like that exact moment. And I kind of like jumped in my seat a little bit. And the kid in front of me kind of did too. And it, it was just interesting to see, like to me, he had charisma. To me, he was interesting. I was intrigued and wanted to see more. I believe I actually texted you right after the knockout and said, what do you know about this guy? Uh, you know, I think 15 fights is a little bit early to sort of, you know, make any sort of determination uh, to me, what's intriguing is 15 first-round knockouts is 15 first-round knockouts. I think I would have trouble knocking out 15 soda cans, you know, if it was just me and them in a ring. But, you know, I think as with all things, the question is what happens when the opponents get more formidable? What happens when somebody takes him six rounds, eight rounds, ten rounds? Does the power uh, sustain and maintain as he gets deeper into bouts? Uh, I'm very interested in seeing it, though. I, th I think he's a guy to keep an eye on. I wonder if he's fast enough for some of the best guys in the division. And I do want to see how the power translates as it gets deeper, but definitely worth watching for sure. Mike, I know you, uh, you know, you talked to, to the people at top rank and I was talking to Carl Moretti about this and Berlanga's manager, Keith Conley. I mean, they, they hate the first round knockout streak. Like they, they want, they want to get their guy, you know, more rounds to see uh, what he can do. I mean, do you look at his success as, you know, being indicative of this huge future, or is he just fighting guys that you know simply can't hit back? I mean, look, we all have a lot of questions, and it's it's not like he's shown me anything that I'm like, oh, well, that's a weakness. I just haven't seen it go anywhere to know that he if he could take a punch or anything like that. He doesn't even need defense. He just needs defense or chin. He doesn't need both. I mean, this guy, there's no question now. This guy has bricks in his hands. I mean, look, Lanell Bellows is no joke. This guy had never been knocked out before. We've all seen him on Showbox and the like. He's a tough guy. He's a, a solid, you know, developmental opponent. A guy that should, you know, in theory, give you some rounds. It was like the first shot that he that, that Berlingo landed where I was like, oh, wow, Pelos is in big trouble now. I mean, this guy has scary, you know, life-changing power. Um, 
I, I, you know what? My gut says he's for real. Uh, I, I love the confidence. I love the way he sits on his shots. He's clearly fearless when the way he walks right in. And he, he just, it, it doesn't seem to be anything lucky about it. He generates great leverage on these shots. He sits right on them. You know, he throws a nice jab. Uh, when he walks in, his hands are up in front of his, he has a good guard. So look, again, like Greg said, I have the questions, but if this guy is indeed for real, and I, I think he is, I mean, he's going to be a star. He has the looks, he has the charisma, he has the swagger, and he has Fat Joe behind him. You go on his Instagram, Fat Joe is a number one fan, so. He, he does remind me a little bit of Golovkin early on in that, like, there's not, there's not blinding speed to his shots, but there's crushing power behind it. And he does have that jab that Golovkin uh, always had when he went to the U.S. So I, I'm interested to see what happens as he as he moves up. But like, what is, Mike, what is a move up for him? Like, is there a reasonable test out for him that can be made either at some point this year or in early 2021? I, I think that's a big problem they're having right now, right? Because you have to, the budget for a developmental fighter, a prospect like Berlanga is only so much for the opponent. You're going to have to pay guys to want to get in there with this, with him. And how, how high do you have to go? You know, who, right now he's fighting the guys you would fight at that, at that stage. If you want to get a guy that you know is going to give him rounds, it might almost be too tough at this point, considering he's never been a full three minutes. So who do you get, right? I mean, I, I look at a guy like maybe a, a Jose Uscadegui, maybe, or is that too much? I don't know. Um, you know, an Anthony Durrell. I, th- I thought about I thought about Lionel Thompson, the guy that just beat Lionel Uscadegui. Thompson. You know, that's another one. You know, like he's won three fights in a row. He's been in with Kovalev, even though he got knocked out. Like he moves, like he's he's tough to to get your hands on. That, that might be, but again, you mentioned the price point. Like, would yeah? I mean, you're not paying somebody huge money to fight Edgar Berlanga, at least not until he's ready to main event something. Right? Is Lionel Thompson going to fight Edgar Berlanga for seventy five thousand? Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're you're right. Golovkin, I think, is a great comparison. It just seems like the the second he touches you, you know, you turn to dust. Yeah. It's the way the guys these guys are reacting too. I actually thought it was a pretty good stoppage. At, at first glance, I was like, oh, that seems quick. No, it was good. This guy was, he was done. Yeah, I, I think, Greg, at some point you, like I'd rather a referee be too early than too late at times. And I, I remember having, I've had this conversation with Steve Smoger a lot about, and Mike, you remember this, the James Kirkland and Glenn Tapia fight where Smoger, like one of his great regrets is like not getting in there, you know, before Tapia got decapitated by Kirkland. And, you know, it's, I'd much rather see a guy jump in a second or two early to avoid a punch. Like we knew that fight was over. It's the question of when, not if. Uh, you don't need you don't need that punishment to continue. Yeah, even even Berlanga said that afterward. I thought it was pretty indicative in his news conference. He was saying he could see he'd split his eye. You know, like he was he hit him hard enough where he could see that it had opened. And then you looked at some of the memes online. I don't know if you guys saw Twitter. They were pretty interesting in terms of just the pictures of, of Bello's face and you know, the other thing I thought was really interesting that Berlanga said afterward was he basically said that, that fight nights are hard for him because they're not enough of a workout. You know, I don't think Mannix or I have ever said that in our lives, but you know, it's like in under three minutes, he's got to do pushups afterwards because he's not even sweating, you know? And, and I, I just thought that that's really interesting as you look at the development of a career too. Like I saw Carl Moretti when he's watching the fight was kind of like, yeah, you know, like it, it was like you said, Chris, like he wanted it to go longer even though he, you know, wasn't disappointed that he won. And I think that'll be interesting too. Like, can he get enough work to where you don't just end up in the eighth round one time and you're like, you can't move because you've only been fighting for two minutes at a time 
and your cumulative total is exceeded in one particular fight. So how they handle that and balance that and move him up in a way that gets him work without exposing him to too much risk, uh, I think that'll be really kind of fascinating to watch for sure. Yeah, finding that bridge fighter is tough. A guy will give him seven, eight rounds, uh, but won't beat him. Like that's that's the matchmaker's nightmare to figure that out. Uh, so they'll have to figure that out to get him uh, those types of fights. By the way, the three minutes that Berlanga fought—that's a full workout for me. I don't know what you're talking about. Like the push-ups are just extra. Yeah, like, that's a saying, full. We've never match. needed to do the push-ups. We only needed like two, nah, two minutes of moving side. Never, <laughs> never, never at all. Uh, let me finish with this. This weekend we have uh, a uh, super flyweight card down in Mexico City. Uh, it's headlined by the rematch between Carlos Cuadras and uh, Juan Francisco Estrada, but I- I'm more interested in the return of Chocolatito, who, you know, for a number of years, you know, kind of pushed those small weight uh, divisions into the forefront with some of those shows on HBO. I mean, he's got real, he's not just a guy that throws a lot of punches like a lot of those lighter fighters do. He's got power, like blistering power. We saw that in his last fight over Cal Yafai. Mike, when you look back at, at Chocolatito's win over Yafai, He's 33 years old now. Do you look at that as being he fought the right guy? Or, you know, is the Chocolatito we saw before the Sorungvisai knockouts, is he, you know, back to the level that we thought he was? You know, it's funny. The last time I was on an airplane was a few hours after that knockout. It feels like it was years ago. I can't believe it was <laughs> earlier this year. But, mm. man, Chocolatito looks awesome. I know Caliafai is not a lead or anything, but he just absolutely destroyed this guy. And it wasn't like a quick knockout. He outboxed him and punished him, you know, for seven, eight rounds, I think it was, before he knocked him out. I mean, that was a comprehensive performance. And I think it just is a reminder that I think all of us are so quick to write athletes off. You know, he was knocked out by Rung Vasai, but this is also a guy in Chocolatito who's one of the all-time greatest, who before the, the Rung Vasai knockout had never really shown any real decline. I think, he's, I think he's still back. I think he's still, you know, even if he's not, you know, still pound for pound number one or whatever you think he was he's got to be elite and i mean that chocolatito estrada fight for 2021 is one of the biggest fights in boxing even if it's not going to be big for the casual fan do you do you give mike how much of a chance do you give quadras of winning that rematch i went back and watched that the other day from 2017 and uh, quadras had some success early got dropped in the 10th round which turned out to be the difference on the scorecards um i i feel like you can tell me if you think i'm wrong but I feel like the the doubt in Quadras is less about that fight than he turns around and gets beat by McWilliams Arroyo in, in the next fight out. And I think that raised some questions. But, I mean, is, is Quadras a live dog in your mind in this fight? I don't think so. I think Juan Francisco Estrada, if he's not one of the 10 best fighters in the world, he's certainly one of the top 15. You're right, Quadras did give him a good fight, but I think Estrada's just on a different level, and I think he'll take care of business in uh, making him wider this time. And he knows what's ahead of him, right? He wants that Chocolatito rematch badly. That's, I think, his only loss. Um, that's such a great fight. I wish we were getting it this weekend, but boxing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one I don't think Eddie Hearn was going to make uh, without fans in the building. I don't no, think he no, was yeah. quite willing to do that. Greg, what do you, I mean, you, you've seen Chocolatito over the years fighting on HBO. Um, he, he's one of those small guys that just breaks through, like that, that people are, are genuinely interested in kind of a, a more mainstream way. Uh, and I'm, I'm also, to, to our, the earlier thing I said about not here for the Lomachenko slander, not really here for the Cal Yafai slander either. It turned out he was exposed, but you know, Cal Yafai was the favorite going into that fight. Like Cal Yafai's in our fighter meetings talking about, about uh, Chocolatito like he was going to be the one big notch on his belt. Like that, you know, Cal Yafai was confident. I remember that first round, and Mike, you were there sitting there watching it. 
Like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, there's no way on God's earth Califi is going to be able to move this much to keep Chocolatito off him. Like, there's no way. Like, that, you knew early on that was going to end badly for Califi. But, you know, what's your take on, on where Chocolatito is now? Yeah, you know, I think when you, uh, I think Mike's right. We, we so quickly forget that this guy had a legitimate pound-for-pound pound, uh, top, top slot claim, and it wasn't all that long ago. And what I'm really intrigued to see is, you know, does this sort of electricity and style that we came to love Chocolatito for translate as he gets older? You know, in some ways, I think his fights might be more interesting. If he's a little bit more vulnerable, I think there are potential wars at play there. There could be an amazing trilogy, you know, somewhere down the line. And I, I think in some ways we might see him, you know, sort of be like a Manny Pacquiao and like he's always interesting to watch, but it's not always like this amazing performance. Like sometimes he's vulnerable, sometimes he loses, sometimes he summons like the magic of old. But yeah, every time he fights, you stop and watch and look. And to me, Chocolatito for now is that same kind of guy. Like I will always watch his fights and I will always be curious to see, does he have the same sort of translating power can he bring the same sort of really interesting style to the fights he has? And to your point, there's a lot of fights to be made at that weight too. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, we maybe wrote him off too early and there's a few intriguing years left. Oh, it's an, it's an awesome weight class for high profile matchups in 2021, whether it's the Estrada rematch, which you know they're trying to make for early next year or, throw Sor Rungvisai into the mix. He's been calling out, you know, both those guys for for more fights. I mean, I think you could have a nice round robin in, in 2021 where everybody gets interested. It'll be, it will, Mike, it will be interesting. And you guys experienced this, the behind closed doors feeling and and you know how it kind of felt to watch Lopez and Lomachenko go at it. I, uh, I will not be at that fight in Mexico City, but I, I have to imagine that's going to, that whole card is going to be weird to see behind closed doors. We have these two, three, Three fights where guys just banging on each other. Like, like Martinez is a banger. You know, Chocolatito's going to go out there and brawl. The main event's going to be, if it looks anything like 2017, is going to be a street fight. Like, that's going to be one of those, like, it's just going to be really weird to watch without the emphasis of the crowd behind it. You know, I, I want to see a one-night special on Todd Grissom and Sergio Moore in the Mexico bars. You know, I, I think it's going to be great. I mean, I'm excited for the card. Julio Cesar Martinez was awesome back in February. And that's another guy that's kind of flying under the radar. I mean, this guy is an action star, if nothing else. He has Eddie Reynoso behind him. He comes straight forward with his hands at his at his waist, kind of like Sergio Martinez. He's like a little wrecking ball. Throw him into the mix, too. What about Inoue? Inoue's at 118. I mean, he's right there, too. This is another problem with boxing, not to be negative. But we have all these weight classes. Is, is Do we really need 112, 115, and 118? Or are they really guys that can all fight each other anyway? Yeah. Especially the in between 112 and 118. The 115 is completely unnecessary. <laughs> you don't need to worry about that three pounds. It's almost as unnecessary as, you know, your your pal Mike uh, Mauricio Suleiman's uh, new weight class right there. I give you credit, Mike. You gave it to him on the on your podcast on the uh, the franchise belt. It is and will continue to be stupid, and you called him out on that, which I, I respect. You have to speak truth Thank to you. quasi-power, and that's what he, he deserved that. But now I regret that I didn't just say the word stupid. So next time <laughs> it's just it, next time. It's just dumb. It's just dumb <laughs> having all these, all these titles. Uh, Mike, keep up the great work over at the athletic and check out Mike's podcast every week. The pug and cop boxing show uh, available on iTunes. Uh, Greg, as always, keep up the good work. You and uh, Jim Gray bonded for life. The book is talking to goats. It's out November 10th. And uh, every copy you buy is an extra year that Greg's kid can have braces. So there's a tangible impact to you buying copies of this book. Absolutely. 
Thanks for having me, Chris. Fun as always. Say hi to Sergio for me. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car Probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. All right, Eddie Hearn is here. Matchroom Boxing, Matchroom Boxing USA. He will return with his U.S. shows for the first time since the summer on, well, next week, this weekend. A card from Mexico City, then November 7th. You've got Devin Haney's 135-pound title defense against Yuriak Gamboa a few weeks later. Daniel Jacobs back in action in a grudge match against Gabriel Rosado. And Eddie joins me here on the show from vacation, Eddie. How you doing, man? This is true. I have to apologize a little bit. I've only had one day here on vacation, and I'm already burnt. This is what, this is what, us, this is what us Brits do, Chris. You know, as soon as we see any sun, we're just there like this, you know. So, yeah, just having a few days. Um to, to rest and recover and then we go again obviously as well as those our UK shows coming up Usyk Chizora uh, first of all in 10-12 in, uh, days time White Povetkin AJ Pulev Katie Taylor etc so really busy end to the year coming up uh, before I get into that stuff you were you're just a few weeks removed from announcing you tested positive for coronavirus how, how did that how was that experience uh, it was it was educational because you know we're involved in a in a sport now as anyone is who works in professional sport where you almost like have to understand the procedures understand you know the virus the the um 
you know, the, the, the recovery, the timing, everything about it. So we, at that point, we had done about 690 tests for our boxing and only one person tested positive and that was bloody me. So, you know, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. And, and I didn't, I didn't really feel a hundred percent. I didn't have any of the COVID symptoms, so to speak, but I just felt tired and, you know, a little bit fluey, I guess. And, uh, I sat in my room after testing thinking, I don't feel right, you know. <laughs> and it came back and then three security came and I had to put the visors on and the big suit on and get in my car. And it was very embarrassing. But what followed was 10 days in a room at home because my, my kids and my wife didn't test positive. So they had to have two weeks off school and I had to stay in a room for 10 days, which for me was, was the hardest thing. I also gave it to my dad looks like I mean which wasn't great he had some heart problems earlier this year he's only in the last three or four days sort of got back into the swing of things he was he was a bit worse than me but um it was quite funny because someone tweeted and said wow Barry Hearn gave Eddie Hearn his empire and Eddie Hearn gave his dad COVID you know what I mean so I'm glad that he sort of come out the other side really um but yeah back you know uh, had the 10 days retested actually on Wednesday, which was two weeks since I, I failed the test and tested positive again. And I was like, how long? Because they say it can stay in your system. But with the Premier League here, Chris, not to bore you, Premier League football, they don't retest for 90 days because they believe, obviously, you could have dead cells in, you know, or even though you're no longer infectious. And then I tested the next day and the next day, and the next two tests were both negative. So... We're out, we're gone, and, uh, you know, we're moving on. But just weird times. And obviously, there's another spike coming back in the UK. Uh, we lost an opponent on the card on uh, Saturday, Friday in Mexico. He's been repli replaced. Caballeros is now in to fight Martinez. So it's like, you know, normally on fight week, last week we lost Savannah Marshall against Hannah Rankin for the world title because Peter Fury, the trainer, tested positive. So, you know, normally you'd get probably a 5% chance of a fight falling through. Once you get to fight week, now it's 50-50, you know, and it's brutal. It's brutal because if it wasn't difficult enough with no crowds, you have to run the risk of the ultimate disappointment, which is potentially losing a fight. Touch wood, we haven't lost a main event or a, or a co-main event yet, but, you know, there, there's lots of challenges ahead. That, yeah, was, a very long, that, that, that was a very long answer <laughs> to tell, asking me how I was. Well, I remember, you know, Robert Garcia this summer, you know, he tested positive once and tested positive a couple of times after that, to your point about staying in your system. Same thing really with Jamel Herring, you know, having to deal with that over and over again. So it, it certainly is the gift that keeps on giving sometimes mm. uh, with that. So glad to hear you and no. your father, though, are good. Well, glad to hear you and your father were doing well. Um, all right, let's jump right into the big picture stuff first here, Eddie. There's a lot of buzz in boxing circles about what DAZN's plan is moving forward. It's been one of the slower networks, maybe the slowest network to kind of come back in the U.S. You've been a significant part of that plan since coming on board as a partner two years ago. What can you tell me about the future of DAZN in the U.S., specifically when it comes to those fights that take place on U.S. soil? Well, I think that... You know, one of the most remarkable things about boxing is the, the will for people to fail in the industry. You know, it is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't matter if it's people evaluating a pay-per-view number. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a network's longevity or a fighter. 
there's a lot of negativity around. So I think that when design were a little bit slow out the blocks coming off the back of the pandemic, there was also the rumours of, oh, maybe they won't return or maybe they don't have the appetite for this anymore. Both, both arguments couldn't be more wrong. You know, there was um, a lot of work going on behind the scene. You know, they were a situation where they were a new platform. They amassed a huge number of followers, especially in that space, you know, when we go back to Canelo, Kovalev, KSI, Logan Paul and AJ against Ruiz. And then all of a sudden the world came crashing down and stopped. You know, we did Mikey Garcia against Jesse Vargas. And then all of a sudden no live sport for what, four months. That's a disaster for any sports network or platform. Doesn't matter whether it's DAZN, doesn't matter whether it's ESPN, doesn't matter if it's Sky Sports in the UK. You know, it's a situation where it's catastrophic. So there was a lot of rebuilding and replanning that had to go behind the scenes. And I'm very proud of the time they took and the effort they took and the strategy they put in place to come and bounce back. The truth is, despite the negativity that still exists for DAZN, they're unrivaled in terms of their value for money for subscribers. And they're unrivaled in terms of their schedule. You know, the back end of last year, there was no schedule like it. And this was this is a, a, a brand new platform that's really just still in the, the first stage of inception. So when we look again now at the, the program moving forward, you know, coming off the back of Ritz and Vasquez and Usyk Chisora and, of course, Quadras and Chocolatito and Martinez this weekend, you have Usyk Chisora next weekend, you have Mungia Johnson coming up to so a really good fight, you know, then you have White Povetkin coming up as well, really good fight, you have AJ, you have Devin Haney against Gamboa, you have... Danny Jacobs against Gabe Brasado. You have potentially Canelo, potentially Triple G. Um, you know, and it, it's nonstop actually. You have Katie Taylor headlining a world title triple header as well. So I think once again, you know, if you look right now at the schedule of every individual network from now until the end of the year, the most consistent, the most value for money is also once again brought to you by Design. They've still got work to do wrapping up 2020 and of course Canelo is I guess that big sort of unanswered question and that you know time is ticking on that one um, but I think they're in a great great spot great position and you know to be honest I think every business right now and every sport is just saying let's get through 2020 you know maybe every person saying that as well <laughs> you know let's 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 return to some kind of normality and when we do we can start pushing the big crowds again you know the major events but I really believe the schedule is it's fantastic. Again, I think the guy's done a great job. So you don't promote Canelo, but you're kind of at the intersection of it all with Callum Smith and Billy Joe Saunders and to a lesser degree right now, Gennady Golovkin. What have you made of that situation? I mean, how are you optimistic it gets resolved? Are you pessimistic? And, and I guess to take it a step further, how does that affect Golovkin, a fighter that you work with? I think that when you look at the Canelo situation, you know, you're right, I'm not involved with that situation. The only thing I do know is that DAZN want Canelo to box this year and Canelo wants to box this year. So that's a great start. You know, there's obviously a lot of stuff in the middle that needs to get sorted out. But I think that whenever you've got people, it's like when you make a fight. If you've got two fighters and two teams that want to make the fight, you have a much better chance as if you don't. And I think here you've got a situation where people want to resolve it. For me, the biggest issue is time. You know, I, I think, and, and by the way, sorry to, to just forget one of the best fights of the schedule, which is Ryan Garcia against Luke Campbell. You know, throw that one into the schedule as well. It's fantastic. So when you've got that December 5th, then you've got AJ Pulev, and I guess you look at Canelo now, that potential date, 
the only one that's really spare is December 19th, you know, which is fine. But really, you get to a point where I think that's eight weeks on Saturday, you know, so they've, they've got to move. As far as Gennady's concerned, you know, Gennady wants to get that record-breaking defence. That's key for him. We know we have a, man, a mandatory in Zerometa. It's just difficult, Chris, because, the, you know, the, the game has changed. You know, all of a sudden, you're not being involved in these big events where there's big weigh-ins and big open workouts. You know, you're in a studio or you're behind closed doors. And quite frankly, the argument is there for the broadcaster that, you know, it doesn't deliver the same kind of value that it did. You know, when Canelo Alvarez boxes this year, it will be in a, in a studio or in a closed arena. You know what it's like at MGM with the weigh-in and the open workouts and the arrivals. You know, all this kind of activity helped grow subscribers for fight night. So it's difficult at the moment. And, you know, what the plan for Gennady is get him out, get that Zerometa event uh, fight banked. And then, you know, the plan remains the same. It's Canelo Alvarez in Cinco de Mayo, hopefully with the world back to normal. But it's very frustrating for everybody because, you know, you look at some of our top fighters that haven't boxed for a year or maybe 13, 14, 15 months. And really, to be honest with you, anyone that's boxed in 2020 is blessed, to be honest with you. It doesn't matter whether that was February or whether that was more recently. And I think every major fighter is sort of looking at it now and saying, okay, let's just get my date in. Let's just get my career back on track. But also, they're now looking at 2020 and going, well, you know, I'm already putting my schedule together for January and February. It's not that far away. You know, you've really got eight weeks to box this year. That's it. You know, otherwise, you've got to be planning for January or February. Do you believe, sitting here right now, that Golovkin will fight in 2020? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that has to be the focus of Gennady Golovkin. You know, you, you have to weigh up that with the schedule of the zone. The zone are paying a lot of money for that fight. Ultimately, I guess they'll decide when that fight happens. But Gennady Golovkin is one of those guys that hasn't boxed since October 2019. That's a long time. You know, I mean, the, the main thing, I think, if you're, if you're managing the career of Gennady Golovkin is, you know, to secure that big fight in Cinco de Mayo. So really, whether you box in December or January, you know, you hope that you come through Zerometa, all clear, and then you can go straight into that. But I think any fighter right now, it's almost psychological, it's a psychological blow to have that 2020 calendar without fighting it. You know, so there'll be a lot of people, and, and I'm seeing it now, fighters that I represent, who I'm having to say, like you're going on January, in January the 30th. What? January? I'm like, hey, you've got to start camp in three weeks. It's not that long away. But it just sounds like I didn't box this whole year, you know? And, and it's frustrating. It's, sometimes it's unavoidable, but we've got to try and do all we can to make sure we deliver for these guys and keep them active. So you've had to become something of a COVID expert, at least laws expert, in, in multiple countries over the last few months. As far as where you intend to put on shows in the U.S. I mean, are you, I mean, you're going to go to Florida right off the bat, but if, you know, as things evolve, are you eyeballing states like Texas and Florida when with allowing fans? And how, how are you treating venues as far as your U.S. fights go? I think, to be honest, we've, we've done so much work and we're so used to, in this period, doing events behind closed doors that... But at the same time, we have a responsibility to try and move things forward for the sport, you know, to try and open up, to try and push the boundaries. But we have to do it safely. You know, I believe the, the Javonta Davis and Leo Santa Cruz fight 
is indoors there in, in Texas. You know, how safe is it at the moment? You know, I'm not aware of, of the current uh, case analysis in, in Texas, but I wouldn't feel comfortable right now going against, you know, the advice of, of, the, the, you know, of, a, of a government or other states that aren't too far away on, on closed door events. You know, in the UK, we're trying to push, but we're pushing for 500, for 1,000, you know, in the hope we might get a couple of thousand for Anthony Joshua. But in my head right now, I'm just saying no crowds this year. You know, and you have to find a way, you have to find a model, you have to find a strategy to keep the business going, to keep maintaining a great schedule for design. And if the crowds come, they come. But I just, you know, I don't, I'm not really into going somewhere so we can do it, you know? Like, I think when they're back, they're back. I don't want to, you know, create a show that's dangerous to the public or, you know, to the people who work for me. You know, right now, this is a very serious disease, you know, where some people underplay it, some people overplay it. I've had it. I've seen my dad suffer with it, right? Luckily, we come out the other side, but it ain't pleasant, you know, especially if you're a little bit older, especially if, you know, you may have an underlying illness. So I just think there's bigger things in life than just getting a crowd back, you know? And I think when you look at top rank with Lomachenko against Lopez, I know they had like a couple of hundred people there just, but I think that Bob could have chose to do that in front of fans somewhere. But I think Bob is, you know, Bob is also 80-odd and he knows, not it's not really for him, but he knows how dangerous. He's seen people suffer with this illness and I don't, I don't think he wants to just do something that could be potentially dangerous just for a few hundred thousand. I mean, we're all losing money. You know, fighters are taking minimums or sometimes less than they originally were, were expected to get for certain fights. And, and that's how it is. So unless there's a safe option to bring back fans... I'm happy right now just to make sure we can keep the schedule going, just to make sure we can keep our clients performing, being active and getting paid. So some of the the big news of this past week was Tyson Fury's decision, at least to publicly say, wasn't going to fight Deontay Wilder for a third time. Bob Arum has said he's well within his rights to do it. Fury's targeting December 5th or some point in December to return uh, in kind of a tune-up fight of his own. And that would seem, Eddie, to clear the path for... You know, Joshua versus Fury at some point in 2021. What did you make of how the Fury-Wilder stuff went down and how optimistic are you that a deal can be struck quickly to at least get on the books a a Fury-Joshua unification fight? I think looking at Fury-Wilder first, it's just weird. You know, I, I, I don't, I mean, we haven't heard from Deontay Wilder, you know, hardly. And I just... I don't know, every fighter that I've ever worked with in that scenario wouldn't be able to sleep at night until they got back in the ring to try and avenge that loss and to try and become champion again. You know, when, when Anthony Joshua lost to Andy Ruiz, there were ups and downs for me to get him back in the ring. But I would not let that lie. And there was no way I wasn't going to deliver that rematch because it's all he wanted. It's all he could think about. Morning, night. You know, and he he dedicated that period of his life to get revenge and get those belts back. Now, when Dillian White got knocked out against Povetkin, you know, it was five minutes later in the changing rooms where he was telling me, please get me the rematch, please. And every day that's passed is a desperation to get back in there and avenge the loss. So something don't smell right about this. 
you know, I mean, I'm not saying that Wilder has to come out and scream and shout, but you have to show a willingness. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why Tyson Fury and those people said, well, we ain't even, you know, we're not even hearing anything. The other side on the contractual side is, I don't understand how you can let a rematch clause expire like that when it's so important for the future of, of the fighter or your client. You know, and I've seen Shelley Finkel come out now and I think they start talking about a little bit of legal action. Surely a contract in a force majeure situation like a global pandemic doesn't just evaporate in thin air. If it does, they've had a complete disaster because Fury's not gonna, a Wilder's not gonna get shot again for years. You know, so what's he going to do? Come back in a 10 rounder or something like that. It's all very strange. Moving forward on to Fury and AJ, great news for us because Fury is expected to have a very easy fight in December. AJ has a fight he's favorite in, but a tough fight against Kubrat Pulev. But, you know, before we had two hurdles to jump, now we've only got one hurdle to jump, which is AJ against Pulev. When we go back to the willingness of, of people to make fights, there isn't one person on the team of Tyson Fury that doesn't want to fight Anthony Joshua. And the feeling is 100% mutual from our side as well. AJ, the only fight he wants is Tyson Fury. Have you had any conversations since Fury's announcement with, with Bob or with Top Rank or anyone in Fury's camp about you know, com- you know, finalizing a deal like that? Yes, I spoke to Bob uh, probably Friday night, actually, just before the Lomachenko fight. And he said to us, look, let's just sort out what we're doing in December. You know, you've got the, the uh, Pulev fight and then let's get this done. You know, it's not really, you know, we've, we've, although it wasn't difficult, you know, we've agreed the financial terms of the fight already. We know what we're doing. There's a couple of minor broadcast details and then there's the, um, where's it going to take place? You know, and that's it. And, and, and like I said, there's no, I mean, I, I never take it for granted, Chris, but I just can't see anything getting in the way of that fight. You know, the other hurdle is Usyk. You know, I mean, if Chisora manages to land the, the haymaker on Usyk on the 31st of October, it would solve the undisputed problem as well. But maybe we have to drop a belt. Maybe the WBO allow it. Maybe Usyk allows it and then we vacate after. I don't know. But it's really important for us that that fight is undisputed because that's always been the dream of Anthony Joshua. But one belt missing would not mean that fight wouldn't take place. So I, I just, all we've got to do is beat Kubrat Pulev on December the 12th. And then I believe we're there. Yeah, the, the Usyk conversation isn't even worth a conversation yet after watching Pavek and White. Uh, I know. Uh, first well, and, Lomachen- and Lomachenko Lopez. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you, you have to get by. Yeah, and you have to look at like, you know, I, I look at, uh, I don't know if you saw Alexander Usyk's post about Vasily Lomachenko following his defeat. And it was super deep, you know, like super deep. And it's just, I don't know, you know, this is, we're in a weird world at the moment where these behind the closed door events can just throw up some madness. And Usyk Chisora will be full of drama, full of drama. So yeah, we'll, you're right. We'll have that conversation after, after Halloween. You know, here in the US, it felt like Lopez Lomachenko was everything that's right about boxing. And like when it, it just went to show that when you put on a fight people are interested in, the mainstream U.S. audience has an interest. I mean, it, this was you know trending on social media all week. I don't know what the exact numbers were for the final viewership, but they're expected 
to be pretty good. You have a star-turning performance uh, by by Teofimo Lopez. I guess my question is, like, it, it's, it seems like it's less a problem for you with UK fighters. They seem to embrace more challenges than U.S. fighters do who are still kind of, you know, somehow obsessed with the Floyd Mayweather model. Do you think fighters will look at this and be like, all right, maybe we don't, you know, fight a big fight behind closed doors, but we don't have to hold out for the last dollar. We don't have to, uh, you know, we don't have to hide behind politics of it all. We can go out and and take these big fights. And I bring this up mostly in the context of my favorite fight that's never going to happen, you know, Demetrius Andrade versus Jamal Charlo, which Mm. like as soon as they announce Chris Eubank, who's fighting Jamal Charlo, I'm probably going to melt down on social media. So like this, I just, you know, I wonder if this can be a spark for something that fighters can see 23-year-old Teofimo Lopez, who made like a million and a half, maybe a little bit less, Mm. you know, for this fight. But, you know, went out and won. And because he won, he is now the shot caller at 135 pounds. Your guy, Devin Haney, is calling him out. You know, Ryan Garcia is talking about fighting him in 2021. He took a risk, and now he's going to get a big reward on the back end of it. I wonder if you think that it's just kind of a one-off, or do you think fighters might actually take notice and, and maybe, you know, follow this path a little bit more? Well, I think that coming off the back of the pandemic again, I, I do think that the sport is going to change. You know, we've seen it in the UK where, to be honest, Chris, we have to be harder. You know, the, we have to be harder on the managers and we have to be harder on the fighters and we have to be willing to lose fighters. I think that's a, a big thing. And, you know, when zone launched, you know, it was about acquiring talent for us. And one of the ways to acquire talent is to give them a great deal. And normally, a great deal means the first fight is a gimme fight, right? Gimme fights are terrible for boxing. There's no doubt about it. So I think moving forward, we have to be much tougher now and say, no, that's not acceptable. It's rarely the fighter. You know, and I think Teofimo Lopez, I have to be honest with you, like when Teofimo Lopez knocked out Richard Comey, I thought to myself, wow, this kid could be a real star. You know, it's almost like you want to give him two or three fights quickly build that profile and then make just a monstrous event with Lomachenko. Right. And when they said, I was going to go straight into the Lomachenko fight, I was like, that's just talk surely. But he believed in himself and he went and done it. You know, like you said, he took small money, tiny money for the fight that it was because he believed he could win. And I didn't think he'd win a round. Right. How wrong was I? I mean, he's, he's, he's a bad man. You know, and look at him though, you're quite right. He's become one of the biggest stars in boxing all of a sudden. Look at that division. You know, amazing. You know, Devin, Haney, Tank Davis, Tiafimo, Ryan Garcia's fighting Luke Campbell. You know, the winner of that's going to be, oh, he's fantastic. But I just feel like we've all got to pull together and say no, right? Broadcasters now, I think, are doing it more. Certainly, I've found with the zone, right? No, we want, we have to get more value for money now. It's tougher than ever. Right, we've got to deliver more value for money for subscribers. We've got to put better fights, you know, etc. So, you probably will see us letting fighters go or not renewing fighters' contracts because one, they may be too expensive and they're not delivering the value, and two, they won't take the fights that we want them to fight. Sometimes, Chris, it's no one's fault, and Demetrius Andrade is a great example of that. You know, for I mean, I've lost count the amount of fights we've offered to people that we can't do and you know just the other day I reached out to Louis de Cubis at the PBC and said Louis let's do the Charlo fight you know we can do it on Fox it doesn't matter 
it won't even be that expensive for you. You know, it might even be the same kind of money you just played Derevchenko. This is a great fight. Not even a reply. You know, it's not Louis' fault, but who would want to fight Demetrius Andre? He's really, really good, and he'll probably beat Charlie. But it's like, what's the answer? They don't want to get people. You, you know, and, and listen, I've been guilty of it in the in the past as well. Sometimes you don't want to take a certain kind of fight for a fight. You know, oh, that's a horrible fight for him. Oof. No, don't mind having a tough fight. It's got to be the right kind of fight. You know, this is just the historic matchmaking process of boxing. But I think it's got to come down to us. It's got to come down to the managers. And it's got to come down to the broadcasters that have the right to say yes and no. You know, and Lomachenko Lopez was great. You know, great for boxing. And, um, you know, and, and like you said, he took the risk. He believed in himself. You know, Devin Haney said to me a lot, you know, when I said to him, right, which way are we going to go here? He says, I want Lomachenko. You know, this was previous. We ranked like top five every governing body. He said, I want WBC. I want Lomachenko. I'm like, yeah. And, and again, this is what this like new stock of fighters, this new era of fighters, this is what they're made of. You know, it's really encouraging for boxing. I don't believe there's one fight that Devin Haney would turn down and build. Not one fight. You know, they want Tiafimo after this fight. Yeah, you know, they want Mikey Garcia. They want the winner of Ryan Garcia against Luke Campbell. And I think the prospects of 2021 are really, really good, especially in that division. But it's going to take those kind of arguments, Chris, where it's like, right, this is the fight for you. It's a great fight. It's going to raise your profile. It's great money. Everyone wants to see it. No, I'm not taking that fight. Then it was lovely working with you, and I wish you all the best. Yeah, but, it's just... You know, just in, in the past... In, in the past, that's difficult to do, especially when we're coming into the market because you know, we don't want to start losing fighters or losing momentum. Or, and people have been too afraid of that in the past. Bob's had enough. I love talking to Bob. Bob's, like, <laughs> Bob's, Bob's great for me for, for counselling in the boxing business, right? Where it's like, oh, Bob, you know, tell these fighters, get out of town. You know, you're not worth this. You're, you know, things have changed. There's a risk, global recession. There's, and he's right. But as long as everyone's consistent with that approach, we'll be in a better place. Oh, I'm sure by the time this podcast comes out, Bob will have called you a moron. So it'll all Yeah, kinda, that's all right. He's probably kinda. right sometimes. You know, but that's all right. I think sometimes sometimes he's a different old git, you know, but I respect him massively. And I think he's, and, and you said, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, Chris, we did the Joshua against um, Parker fight in Cardiff. And we sat down, we did an evening with, Eddie Hearn and Bob Aaron, right? With his VIP customers. And the, the, the guy narrowed said, Eddie, what's been your biggest achievement in boxing? I said, well, it would have to be AJ against Klitschko, 90,000 people at the National Stadium in Wembley. Oh, yeah, but wow, wow, wow. And they went, what about you, Bob? He said, well, it's between the thriller in, the Man thriller in Manila and the rumble in the jungle. And I just went, you know. So, <laughs> listen, I'm a novice in the game compared to Bob. but And, and I respect him. But it just takes everybody now to just batten down the hatches a little bit and say, we have to deliver. But ultimately that comes from the paymasters, which is the networks. And I know we're under pressure from the zone to deliver great fights and a great schedule for the rest of this year. And particularly 2021 and 2022 and 2023. You know, that's our, what we're talking about is our strategy for those years now, but we have to deliver top rank have to deliver for ESPN and, and PBC have to deliver for Fox. Every, every business right now, every sport is under major pressure. Good news for the fans. Before I let you go, um, you know, one of the things you had the ability to do last year 
was put together Ramirez Hooker types of fights. You know, sweeten the pot a little bit to get a big time fight over on the DAZN side of the street. As this pand- as we come out of this pandemic eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later, do you still feel like you have the ability to do that? You talked about, you know, making the big fights. Sometimes the big fights cost a little bit more to make. Do you feel like going into next year, you still have the ability to open up the checkbook for to get a big fight? Yeah, I think that the zone are still very keen on bringing as many big fights, as many tentpole moments to the platform as possible. You know, still the big sell for the zone is, you know, and, and reading all those fights out that I just, you know, mentioned, you think about the value from the zone for less than a hundred bucks a year. And, you know, you're about to pay 80 bucks or 85 bucks for Javonta Davis against Leo Santa Cruz for one night of boxing. You know, the value on the zone is unprecedented, but they still need those key tempole moments and they're expensive. You know, we, when we came into the market, we had to overpay for fights. No one knew about the zone as a platform. You know, no one knew about me in some aspects. And, you know, so we had to pay a premium to bring fights. Hooker Ramirez was a good, was a good example. We paid, I don't know, 25, 30, 35% over the value of that fight because we had to make a statement. And, and they're the kind of fights, classic example of a great unification fight that we wanted to bring to the platform. So the money is definitely there to bring those moments. I just think that now, you know, we've got to be smarter. We don't, we're established, right? The zone. Still got a long way to go, but all of a sudden we're in the game. You know, and I think one of the greatest um, sort of compliments you can pay to Zone is you talk about the big three. You know, you talk about Fox, ESPN, and DAZN, or Matrim, Top Rank, and and um, Go and uh, sorry, and PBC. That's the shooting out. You know, I know there's others, Golden Boy, and but, but but really, that's you know. And when you talk about the three platforms, they're the three platforms. You know, ESPN's been around for years. Fox has been around. These are established. You know, broadcasters, Design's done a great job, but we do have to be smarter. But the money and the aggression is definitely there to make the bigger fights. And I think, you know, when you look at early part of 2021, the most obvious is, you know, fingers crossed Devin Haney gets past Gamboa on November 7th. It's Haney against the winner of Garcia Kemp. You know, that's that's the fight for the first quarter. And then hopefully we get the Tiafimo Lopez fight after that. You know, but they're the kind of fights that, should be very easy to make. You know, Luke's with us. If he wins, bang, great. If Ryan Garcia wins, we should make Garcia against uh, Haney very, very quickly. Both big, big fights. And, and that's really, we need to start establishing those routes rather than making an investment on a one-off basis, you know, maybe with Mikey Garcia, you know, that, those kind. We have to really grow the young talent that we've got and start moving towards paths of, making great fights or making big unification matchups. And, and I'm very excited. I think, you know, we've got, like I said, we've got the best schedule to close out 2020. And I think 2021, you know, all the noises I'm hearing from the zone and, and the proof is in the pudding and the aggression that they're showing means that we're, we're banging the game and ready to be very aggressive against everybody else. Again, we, you, know, you don't want us to be out of the game, you know, as a fight fan, trust me, because you need us pushing. You think, why do you think Bob Arum and top rank have stepped up to the plate? Because we're pushing, we're spending. You know, I've seen it myself when all of a sudden you're trying to get to the top and you're battling out and then all of a sudden you get there and there's not a lot of competition anymore. You know, it's very easy to take your foot off the gas. So let everybody be aggressive and, you know, we want to win. Top rank want to win. PBC want to win. Golden Boy want to win. That's good news for fight fans. 
Yeah, I think every fight fan wants to see bigger fights and are ready for that to be a more consistent part uh, of the boxing schedule. Eddie, good to hear that you're you're healthy again, your father's healthy, and uh, look forward to seeing you stateside uh, at some point next month for the uh, start of the U.S. schedule for, for uh, DAZN and Matchroom. Appreciate your time, man. Cheers, guys. All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to my guests. As always, subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, you know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.